know that the stuff that's clear to others, but it just doesn't seem to be clear for you. Like, here's my nerdy pastor naivete on display, okay? I don't know why everybody doesn't want Christianity to be true. Maybe, maybe not the version that other people live out. Maybe not the, the version that you grew up with. And maybe not the version that gets splashed on the news far too regularly. But I don't know why everybody wouldn't want the original version to be true. Jesus' irresistible version. And there's a huge difference between, I don't believe it's true. Maybe you don't believe the story of Jesus is true, okay? I can understand that. Some people, they say, I just don't believe it's true. Sometimes they need, uh, people need some more information. Sometimes they need some more evidence. Sometimes they just need some time to process things that they haven't thought of that way before. And sometimes uh, people just need to have a difficult question answered. I get that. But there is a really big difference between, I don't believe it's true, and I don't want it to be true. So I have a hard time understanding why when people are confronted with the original Jesus and the life of Jesus, why they wouldn't at least want it to be true. Now, you, you might never get to the place where intellectually uh, faith, faith kicks in for you. It just, it, you just can't get that far. But wouldn't you at least want it to be true? Blaise Pascal, you, you know the guy I'm talking about, right? The 17th century mathematician, philosopher, he wrote this. See if this is true. People almost invariably arrive at their beliefs, not on the basis of proof, but on the basis of what they find attractive. This explains all kinds of conversations that you've had or that you've, they've been going on around you. So when, when something is attractive to us, we go looking for reasons to substantiate our beliefs. He's not saying that because it is attractive, then therefore it is true. And I'm not arguing that since I think that the original version of Christianity with Jesus is attractive, well, then therefore it is true. That's not my point. My point is this. Christianity in its earliest form was so extraordinarily attractive that I don't understand why people in modern times wouldn't want it to be true. Early Christianity was so attractive that eventually it became the religious and the worldview of the Roman Empire, the vast Roman Empire. Empire. All of Western culture has been shaped at something uh, so, such, such a deep, deep level because it was so attractive. And the thing that makes the original version of Christianity so attractive is a single word. And maybe it's a word that was just never part of your experience. Maybe it was never part of the equation for you as you were growing up or up to this point. And that word is grace. Grace is what we crave most when our guilt is exposed. You come home late, your parents are sitting there, they've got the stuff, right? They know it's yours. There's no excuse, there's no story, there's no loophole. You are so busted. And you're thinking in that moment of all the things that they can take away from you. And in that moment, you crave, you might not have had the word at that point, but you crave grace. Your boss walks in 
sits down, boom, he lays it out, right? You realize there is no excuse, there is no one to blame. It's you. You did it. You didn't do it. This is on you. And in that moment, what you're looking for, hoping for, is grace. You were looking for someone to give something to you, to extend something to you that you know you don't deserve. At the same time, there's a flip side. And that that flip side is why there is so much tension around this. Because grace is what we are hesitant to extend when confronted with the guilt of others. Especially when they have hurt me. Maybe even more so when they have hurt someone that I love. And that's the tension right there. Grace, when we're on the receiving end, is extraordinarily refreshing. But grace, when it's required of us, oh, it's extraordinarily disturbing. Think about how that settles in on the relationships that you're in right now, right? You've got good ones. You've got bad ones. You've got the ones that you're trying to repair. You've got the ones that they're coming to you to try and repair. And grace is the unsettling and unexpected gift. Maybe you've heard of grace. Maybe that's something you've had talked about. And somewhere in the life, you've come along the idea and you have a definition. But I just wanted to share a definition that we're going to work with together over the next couple of weeks. So here's our definition of grace. This is what we're going to refer to. So as we go on, we're going to be on the same page. So grace is undeserved, unearned, unearnable favor. It's someone leaning in your direction when they should lean away. Someone who knows, uh, someone who you know you should pursue because of um, something that you've done, that you've hurt them, and they actually initiate the conversation with you. Grace is strange. You, you can no more deserve grace than you can plan your own surprise party. Okay? If you plan your own surprise party, the fact that you planned it voids the surprise. And the moment that you think that you deserve grace, you have actually voided the grace. You can ask for grace. You can beg for grace. You can sing for grace. You can say grace. You can plead for grace. But the minute that you think that you deserve it, it's no longer grace. Then here's the additional twist. Messes us up a little bit. For most of us, maybe all of us, We can't recognize or receive grace for what it is until we're convinced we don't deserve it. We can't even recognize or receive grace for what it is until we come to the place where I understand that I don't deserve it. It can only be experienced within the context of a relationship because grace is purely relational always tied to a relationship. It can only be experienced within the context of a relationship where there is now an imbalance and you are on the negative side because of your behavior. And this is what makes Christianity so unique. This is what makes the arc of the story of Christianity so unique but so attractive 
This is the reason why even if you can never get there intellectually where you can believe that it's true, this is why I think that everybody should want it to be true. And this is why God had to show up. Because grace is 100% relational. And you can't experience or understand grace apart from a relationship. That's why God had to show up. This is why we celebrate the way that we do at Christmas. We would never have known the grace of God without the presence of God. For God's grace to be seen, for God's grace to be known, for God's grace to be um, ha, to become understandable for us, it, there had to be a person. It had to be personal, and that is the message that we come back to again and again at Christmas. So, uh, John, you, you know John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the gospel writer, John, John, who was a disciple of Jesus, Jesus who was, uh, John, who was there for the entire thing with Jesus, John, who lived to be an old man. We talk about him all the time. He outlived Peter and Andrew. He outlived James, the brother of Jesus. John is an old man. He probably outlived all of his contemporary friends. And with hindsight, looking back, he decides, hey, I need to get my story out there. I got to get it out before I die. And so he sits down with someone and he probably uh, dictated this. Most of Jesus' followers were probably illiterate people. And illiterate meant so much different then than it does now because the vast majority of the population of the entire world was illiterate. So consequently, we as Christians are frequently uh, criticized. They're saying, there's no way that a bunch of ignorant Galileans could ever write the level of Greek literature that comes out. And we say, well, hello, probably didn't physically write it. They probably dictated it. And every scribe in the first century could speak and write in multiple languages, two or three at least. And so John is an old man. And uh, the Christians around him are, are probably saying, man, he, he's, his time's almost up right? John, we need to hear your story. We need, we need to get it all down from, from an eyewitness perspective. You're an old man. We don't know how much longer you're going to be around. We need what you've got. Tell us your story. So maybe you can imagine, I don't know how you would think about how to do this, but John has to sit back and start to figure out, where do I begin to tell this epic tale that I've lived through? How do I make it so realistic so that people will believe. And yet I know that the story is so fantastic that it's going to be really hard for people to believe. And so John begins his account of the life of Jesus this way. He goes right to the heart again of what Christmas is about. Right to the heart of what grace is about. And he says this in John 1.14. The word became flesh. And this is his way of saying, I don't know how to describe it. Okay, don't ask me to give you all the details. I don't have a schematic. I don't have an illustration for this. I can't tell you exactly how it all happened. All I know is this. God inhabited a body. God came to earth. I know it's hard to believe, but just wait. I'm just getting started, okay? So God became flesh and made his dwelling among us. The explanation for all things took up residence right amongst us. God us, Emmanuel. And then he says, we. And he's not talking about you, we. He's not talking about me, we. He's not even talking about we, we. He's talking about him, 
we. He's saying, look, this isn't something I heard about. This isn't something I read about. I didn't click a link on Facebook. This, is, this isn't someone else's story that I'm just passing on to you. We, as in Peter and Andrew and James and Matthew and the rest of the disciples and dozens and dozens of other people and hundreds of men and women, we have seen. We didn't hear about it. It wasn't even just John telling us. We didn't read about it. That's why I'm dictating this because this is such a big deal. So that you will know we have seen the glory and the glory of the one and only Son. And again, as John is sort of saying, like, don't ask me to explain it. I don't know how it all works. All I know is this. God is our Father, and Jesus is the unique Son who came into this world to bring and to be, to represent the presence of God, to explain to us what God is really like, who came from the Father. And then here is the essence that he is going to repeat again and again and display again and again, who came from the Father full of grace and truth. Not the balance of grace and truth. That's what we try to pull off, right? Not the balance of. Anytime you try to balance between grace and truth, you either lose some grace or you lose some truth. Jesus was full on grace and full on truth. Jesus brought a full dose of grace and truth, and each of us tends to be one or the other. You're either a, a grace person or a truth person. That's the way we tend to be, and maybe you grew up in a grace church or you grew up in a truth church, and the truth is that now as you look back, it is so hard to forget. It is so hard to unlearn. Jesus never watered down the truth or turn down the grace. He called sin, sin. He called sinners, sinners. And then he laid down his life for the sinners and paid for their sins. Jesus was all grace, all truth, all the time. And John saw this. He saw it with people as he saw Jesus interact. And that's what led John, who was an old man, to finally dictate these words. These words that would change Western civilization, and I guarantee that you have heard them. These words that have changed the way every single person imagines God, the way that the, everybody now views God. This was an idea that up until this point had never been introduced to the human race, and John was the very first person to say it. And as wild as it sounds, in the middle of the first century when everything is going wrong, the world was upside down, and all of his friends had been executed or martyred or had been lost, John was the one who brings this idea about God to the world, that God is love. And the reason that John could conclude this un, previously unknown thought is because he knew Jesus and God is love because that's what Jesus was, full on grace, full on truth in a body and love is grace and truth. And John was there that very awkward afternoon when Jesus and his disciples and the, the, the big crowds that were following him everywhere he went, they went through an intersection and they had to stop. Um, and, and they had to face down a tax gatherer. This is the way Rome collected taxes 
Um, they, would, they would be at bridges and intersections and they would collect as you wanted to use them. And after they'd taken their care of their business with the tax collector, Jesus leans in and he says, hey, Levi, Matthew, uh, hey, I want you to follow me. To which I am sure that the rest of the apostles that are with him are like, no, not him. He's a traitor. He's a tax gatherer. Even his own family won't have him home for holidays. What do you mean, follow me? He's not going to be part of our thing. Matthew, I want you to follow me. And there's no indication that Matthew had suddenly decided to no longer be a tax gatherer. He just got up and probably had one of his subordinates come on over and start doing whatever it was that he was doing. He decided to follow Jesus. But Peter and all the guys who are with him, and they're stepped back and they're going, oh, this is not going to go well for us. We're going to lose the crowd now. And Matthew says, I'll follow you. And then he says, one of the most logical things, where are we going? And Jesus says, so that everyone can hear. Well, Matthew, we're going to your house. And Peter's like, well, I'm not going to his house. And Jesus says, oh, yes, you are. He's following me too. We're all going to go to his house. But Jesus, he's a tax gatherer. You haven't even asked him to repent. You haven't asked him to give back the money that he's been stealing from these people. You're just going to sit here and ask him to follow you? And then we're going to go to his house? This is a hugely awkward moment. And they go to Matthew's house. And, and Matthew invites a bunch of his tax collector friends because Jesus says, I want to come over for dinner. I want you to invite your friends. And Matthew's thinking, okay, but you're not going to like my friends. And my friends, they're not going to like you because you're nothing like them. And they're nothing like you. How can you like them? How can they like you? We don't know how, how long this took. It could have been the next day for all we know. So here we are. <clears throat> all of Matthew's friends. And here's Peter, right? Bad attitude came with him. And this makes for a really awkward party. It would be like this. Imagine, maybe you're in a social setting, right? You're out with your friends, maybe some of your relatives. Maybe it's like the office uh, Christmas party. And now imagine that everyone there has had just a little too much of the fancy Christmas punch, all right? And everyone's kind of loosened up by that. And then I walk in. Why, why are you laughing? They go, hey, here's the party downer. We like him on Sundays, not so much on Saturday night. How long do you think Graham and Cheryl are going to be here, you know? And as soon as we leave, the party amps back up again, right? And this is how it was. So here's Jesus, the rabbi, in the house of Matthew, the tax gatherer. And the whole thing is so tremendously awkward and unsettling. And right there, that feeling that you get, that's the nature of grace. What just appeared on the scene was the unexpected gift. And the Pharisees, well, they're the protectors of the truth. They walk around trying very hard to not get their hands dirty. 
And they step around things to avoid becoming ceremonially unclean. They are vigilant in avoiding anything that makes them unclean. They represent God to the people. But if God is really like that, I'm not sure how close I really want to be with God. Matthew 9. When the Pharisees saw this, right, they weren't invited, okay? Even if they were, they would not have gone. So when they saw, when the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples. They sent a messenger into the house because they weren't about to go there themselves. Why does your teacher gather with tax collectors and sinners, right? He's a rabbi. He should be eating with us over here, away from them over there. So the messenger goes in, and I'm pretty sure that uh, they make the message loud and clear, right? Make sure that everyone could hear this so that Matthew and his friends could be shamed because that was the job, to shame people into following the rules. Everybody, excuse me, my friends, the Pharisees, you know, from the temple, Jesus, they just wanted to know why you're in here eating with this uh, rabble. Why are you eating with tax collectors and sinners? And I think Jesus answers equally as loud. He comes right back and he says, don't call Matthew and his friends sinners. That might hurt their feelings. No, that's not what he said at all. (laughs) Jesus takes this awkward situation and he decides, you know, it would be great. Why don't I make it more awkward? And he does that grace and truth thing again in real life. And he does it throughout his time on earth. He's at Matthew's house. He invited Matthew to follow him. He asked Matthew to invite a bunch of his friends over. And then he says out loud so that everyone can hear in a room that might have just gotten really quiet because that other guy just said what he just said. And Jesus says, go tell the guys on the outside. It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. And so Matthew is just double take. What? Jesus, did you just say in my house, in front of my friends that you told me to bring here, that you think that I'm sick? To which Jesus would have said, yes. You're stealing from your people. That is sickness. But I still want you to follow me. Yes, Matthew, you are sick. That's why I'm here. Now the disciples have got to have their heads splitting open. Jesus, you just messed up all the categories. If you want someone to follow you, you ask people who are like you to follow you. That's how it works. You don't ask people who are not like you to follow you. That's not how it works. And Jesus probably just smiled because I I picture Jesus smiling a lot. Oh yeah, Tell the Pharisees outside this. And this is so offensive, okay? He says, go and learn. And whenever you tell the smartest person in the room to go and learn, you have offended them, all right? And so he's going like, how how have you overlooked this key concept? This is not hidden. This is not a secret. What did you think this meant when you read it? But go and learn what this means. And then he goes and he quotes from the Jewish scriptures, the scriptures that all of these guys study. And they study kind of professionally. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. I'm not afraid to call a sinner a sinner. And I'm not 
afraid to go to their house for dinner. We should all probably just say that right now. What do you think? I'm not afraid to call a sinner a sinner, and I'm not afraid to go to their house for dinner. Then there is this next story. It's an emotional story, and you don't have to have ever grown up in the church to even know it. You've probably heard it. One day, Jesus is going up the southern steps up to the Temple Mount. This is the centerpiece of the presence of God on this planet. That's that's the way the Jews treat it. This is approaching the Holy of Holies. And when the Romans overtook the city of Jerusalem, this was the last place, the last stronghold of the Jews. The population filled the temple, and they said, we just can't let them take the temple. There is absolutely nothing in our Western world that has anywhere near this value. In this place, we focus on God. In this place, we focus on the law. In this place, we focus on the sacrifices to God. And one day, these men drag a woman up to Jesus and they throw her down in front of him. John is the one who includes this story in his gospel. And apparently, they had held her all night, waiting for this moment. Let's wait until he's right up right near the temple, right close to the Holy of Holies. Now let's see what he'll do here. Maybe you've heard this story. They drag her up, they throw her down right in front of him. Jesus, this woman was caught in adultery. And the law, oh Jesus, you know the law, right? The law that lives right over here. If you want, we could go and read it right now. The law says that she must die. She must be executed. She must be stoned to to death. Now, Jesus, he's so brilliant. Here's a reason, again, that I I, I think that these stories are, are true and not made up because no one thinks of this kind of stuff. So Jesus says, okay, it's true. You guys are the experts in the law. Stoner. Now, he knows that they're not going to stone her right there, right on the edge of the temple, right there and then, but she's terrified. So just imagine, she's terrified. No mercy, no love, no compassion, no, hey, tell us what happened. Tell, give, give us your side of the story. What was going on? So Jesus says, okay, guys, start. And oh, yeah, one thing. We'll just have the person who doesn't have any sin, you, you go first. And then he kneels down and he starts writing in the sound. And the amount of speculation about what he's writing in the sound is just astronomical, just unbelievable. So many thoughts on what he's writing in the sand. We don't know what he was writing, okay? But it feels like it could have been maybe something like this. It takes one, two, No one. I don't know what he was drawing, but the eldest guys in the crowd, they said, oh, he got us again. And they start to turn away and maybe they kind of grab the younger guys at the same time. Let's go. Let's get out of here. And then the woman, she she can't believe what just happened, right? And then Jesus, once again, ruins the moment. 
he leans down and he looks into her eyes and he says, leave your life of sin. No, hey, you're fine. I hope you're okay. Those are bad men, right? Not, oh, I think you probably had a rough upbringing. No, it's just leave your life of sin, grace and truth. You are guilty, but I don't condemn you. But hold on. This is, this is not what I'm used to hearing. If I'm guilty, you are to condemn me. I know you are guilty, but I don't condemn you. No, no, no. If I'm innocent, you don't condemn me. But if I'm guilty, how can I be guilty and you don't condemn me? How does that work? I've never seen that happen before. It used to be like that. But at this moment, for your benefit, and for your benefit, and for your benefit, and for your benefit, and for my benefit, grace has touched down. There is a new law giver. There is a new covenant maker who is all grace, all truth, all the time, and over and over. And this is why even if you can't get there intellectually, you should want this to be true. Jesus leaned in towards pre-repentant, guilty people and invited them to follow him. Then John, last story, was there at the very end. And we know he was there at the very end of Jesus' life because Jesus says to John, who brought us so much of this, he said, John, my mother Mary is like your mother. And that was his way of saying, care for my mother. And then things got so difficult in Judea, so, so difficult in Galilee, the tradition tells us that John took Mary to live in the city of Ephesus. And if today, if you visit the city of Ephesus, they will take you to where they believe that John took care of Mary, the mother of Jesus, until she finally left this life. We know John was there at the very end. When Jesus was crucified, John witnessed the ultimate expression of grace. This was the most unsettling expression of grace so far. This was the moment that put the amazing in grace. Here's what he saw. Luke tells us the story. John's down there, but Luke is writing this part, and he tells us uh, two other men, both criminals, were also led with him to be executed. First century religion, first century politicians decided that they needed to get rid of grace and truth in a body. It's just so uncomfortable. We don't know what to do with this stuff. It's so unsettling and it's so unexpected. And when they came to this place called the skull, they crucified him there. And normally, if you read Luke, Luke is just loaded with detail, but not here. There is no detail given. Everyone who heard this, had seen it. They had smelled it. They had heard crucifixion. They were all far too familiar with crucifixion. There was no reason to give detail. None were necessary. It would not be until hundreds of years later that the symbol of the cross became a symbol of Christianity, not until everyone who had ever seen a crucifixion had died off. They were just too horrible. Along with the criminals on his right and the other on his left, 
There he is. Then there is one of those, those phrases that if you read the New Testament, you can just, you can just write it, go by. But it's a horrifying detail. A crowd gathered. The people stood watching. And the rulers even sneered at him and they said, he saved others, but, he can't, but let him save himself. He, if he is God's chosen, if he's God's Messiah, God's chosen one. Because they understood that that's what Jesus had been claiming. They understood that that's what his followers had been claiming for him. And one of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. And he was going to take his anger and, and his, his vitriol and his venom, his vengeance, all the way to death. And the other criminal rebukes him. And these collected words, the way that, the way that they're just formed into paragraphs and sentences, um, they probably don't clearly enough explain what's actually going on here. Breathing was really hard. People who are being crucified are suffocating. Each phrase, maybe each word, would have been in a tremendous act of the will. Push down on the nails in your feet so you can take a breath. Gasp it in. Don't you fear God? <sighs> Since you under the same sentence... So much effort for him to say this. We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. So if the kingdom of heaven is reserved for good people, if the kingdom of heaven is reserved for righteous people, if the kingdom of heaven is reserved for people who did it right every single time, his acknowledgement is, well then, we have no hope. His only hope was what he didn't deserve, what he deserved the least, something that he had extended very little of to other people. So in an act of desperation, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. There is no doubt in my mind that where you are going is different than where we are going. So anyone watching, kind of overhearing this from the crowd would be just saying, this is ridiculous, right? What's he doing, repenting? Huh? Repenting from the cross? Meaningless, right? Are you committing that from now on you're going to follow Jesus? From now on? It's probably going to be like 30 minutes. There's no point in rededicating. There's no point in, in considering restitution. There's no way to do anything good with the rest of your meaningless, despicable little life. There's nothing to promise. You've got nothing to offer. You have no bargaining power with men or with God. And then in this moment, Jesus disturbs the order of things. Jesus introduces an unexpected gift. He reveals a tremendously unsettling thing in his followers. followers. They're so accustomed to it, but they would never imagine, not even in their wildest dreams, that it would be taken to this extreme. Jesus interferes with this man's 
karma, and he does the unthinkable. He listened, and then he answered. Jesus answered him. And let me ask you this really, really critical question. Does God hear the prayers of sinners? Yes. Those are the only kinds of prayers that there are. So Jesus, why even acknowledge him? Every word cost Jesus dearly. Every breath was combined with excruciating pain. Excruciating is a word that means of the cross or from the cross. We take, in English, our word excruciating to describe the worst kind of pain from the cross. But he does it anyways. He answers. And do you know why? Because that's what grace does. Grace answers anyway. Truly, I tell you, today you will be with me. And then the criminal thought, oh, that's the problem. Today I'm here with you, here on a cross. And then Jesus finishes in paradise. Holiness with human hands promised a man who had done nothing good and had nothing good to offer. Where I'm going, you're going. He grants a last-minute request to a last-minute convert. And when he grants this request, he is essentially saying, you are going to have the same eternity as Stephen, who would later be stoned because of his faith. You're going to have the same eternity as Peter, who has been with me for these last three and a half years. Why? Why would Jesus do this? I think this was mind-boggling to anyone who came across it. Mind-boggling to John and, and, and to Luke and to Peter. And they're going, come on. I mean, the woman in adultery, she was caught, right? That's one thing. Talking to, to, to the Levi, to Matthew, and asking him to follow you. That's like one thing. But this, come on, Jesus. This is like a whole other thing. Why? So here's what I want you to hear. If you don't hear anything else, because like life, grace is not fair. Like life, grace is not fair. It is better than fair. It is unexpectedly, disturbingly, unsettlingly better than fair. And Jesus continues this after the resurrection. Jesus he calls Peter, come on over here. And Peter is just feeling shame and guilt, right? When Jesus was arrested, Peter denied and he denied and he died. And then, and then, he, and then he didn't deny that he even knew Jesus and he, and he ran, he fled. He's scared for his life. And now Jesus calls Peter aside and he says, Peter, I'm putting you in charge of the whole thing. There was nobody who was less deserving. And very soon after that, maybe a year after that, Jesus recruits Saul of Tarsus. And Saul was trying to dismantle and to destroy the entire Jesus movement. And Jesus recruits Saul of Tarsus. And we know him much better as the Apostle Paul. He, allowed, he was the one who, who was allowed to write almost half of the New Testament. 
And Jesus is emphasizing again and again and again, I am the one who brings grace. Not in half measure, not the mix of, not the blend of, but full on grace and full on truth. He is all truth and all grace all the time. Because that is what love is. And I am love personified. Now your pushback on this, We'll talk about this next week, okay? So please, come back next week. The story is not done, right? Your pushback on this, my pushback on this is simple. This is why the whole thing feels so unexpected and it feels so unsettling. So we want to say, wait a second. Did Jesus not care about justice? Was Jesus not concerned about consequences? No, that's not the issue because Jesus knew better than anyone about justice and consequences. He knew that God's justice would crush us because all have sinned and nobody can pay God back. Jesus wasn't unaware of consequences. He knew better than anyone that the consequences of sin were already crushing us. That's why he came. Because every single sin, whether you believe in sin or not, every single sin comes baked in, pre-packaged with a gotcha. Every single one. And so Jesus, in his grace and in his mercy, Jesus came to get you. So this is why I think that it makes sense. Every single person would want this story to be true. Why would you not want this to be true? You don't have to admit this to anybody today. But you owe it to yourself to consider that there is a creator God that invited you to talk with him and to reflect with him as if he is your perfect heavenly father. And he is known for grace and truth that dropped down to earth in the person of Jesus. Why wouldn't we want that to be true? When grace is on display, people will want it to be true before they ever believe it's true. And Jesus put it this way, summarizing the transition from the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, to the New Testament, to the New Covenant. He said, the law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Not John who wrote the Gospel of John. This is about John the Baptist. He said, up until the time that John the Baptist showed up to announce my coming, up until that time, the law and the prophets were proclaimed. But since that time, since the end of the old covenant, since the day that I stepped foot on planet earth, the law and the prophets were proclaimed until John, since that time. The good news of the kingdom of God is being preached and everyone is forcing their way into it. And that's exactly what has happened historically. It's why more than 2,000 years later, why we're still here meeting, talking, celebrating. When people catch a glimpse, when people caught a glimpse of what was actually being offered, they began to lean in, hoping, looking for evidence of this fact that maybe, just maybe, that this is an act of God. The good news, as Jesus referred to it, is embodied in a person, Jesus. 
And the good news is summarized in the word grace. Grace is an invitation. It's an invitation very much like the invitation that Jesus extended to Matthew. It's an invitation that goes like this. I know all about you. I know you're good and I know you're bad. And I want you to follow me. But be warned, if you follow me, I will lead you away from your sin. And no, I have not forgotten what you've done. It's better than that. I remember all of it. And I love you anyway. Now come on, follow me. Kind Father, I thank you for the gift, unexpected as it is, of Jesus and how he came to demonstrate what you're like because without that demonstration, we get mixed up and confused. Thank you for opening this doorway to us. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for the possibility of even participating in it. You know me. All of me. You forget none of it. And you love me anyway. And the same is true for my friends here today, for those who are watching and for those who are listening. God loves you. And he knows you. And what he knows about you isn't enough to make him stop loving you. And the invitation remains the same. Follow. Step in his direction and he will step in yours. Thank you for this Christmas gift. In Jesus' name, amen.